0: Welcome to the CRISPR revolution. This is CRISPR cuts, a podcast dedicated to the world of genome engineering. Take a break and join us as we guide conversations with an expert CRISPR cast about this cutting edge science.
1: Welcome to CRISPR cuts. Our guest today is Dr. Ayal Hinden. He's a genome editing pioneer and currently a group leader at Bar Ilan University in Israel.
0: Dr. Handel was one of the first researchers to use modified synthetic guide RNA to edit primary cells with CRISPR, and the method he helped develop is being used in many clinical trials today. I'm looking forward to hearing his perspectives on the early days of CRISPR and the recent advancements he's most excited about. So let's get into it.
1: Welcome to CRISPR Cuts. Thank you for joining us today, Ayal. Maybe for starters, could you tell us about your journey so far? Let's start with personally, where you're from, where you grew up.
2: Yeah, thank you very much for having me here today. So I was born in, in Israel, and in high school I actually studied physics and chemistry. I didn't know that I'm going to end up in, uh, in biology. But then once I decided what I want to study in the university, I was actually fascinated by, by nature, and I decided to go and study biology, life science.
1: How did that go professionally? Maybe cover your professional journey, how that has been?
2: I did my undergrad studies in in Israel, in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in life science. It was a very inspiring, very good place to study biology. I I remember that in my class, we had around 300 students that studied biology, but I was part of a team that was tunneled more to research. After I finished my undergrad studies, I decided to do my uh, master's degree and PhD at the Weizmann Institute in the Department of Biochemistry. And this was actually done in, in the field of DNA repair.
0: So thinking back to when you, when you were younger and growing up, were there any kind of memories or certain instances in your life that kind of led you down this path to be interested in science and to ultimately pursue a career
2: in science and research? That's actually a great question. You know, when I see and hear all the interviews with the scientists, they always tell that while they were very young, they already knew that they are going to go to science. But I actually had a career in sport. I was a fencer. I was sure that I'm going to go to the Olympic Games and be a professional fencer. And I still believe that there are many similarities between sport and science, like uh, inner motivation, dedication, competitiveness, among other things. So, yeah, while I was uh, young, before uh, the university, I was in sport, but eventually I decided that I'm going to change my career and came to science and biology.
0: Well, yeah, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, a lot of people like show an interest in science who, who have a career in science at an early age. But you're right though, like science is more like a way of approaching things. It's not one way to get started. So I think I, I can definitely see the similarities between sport and science and doing research in particular. Moving forward in your in your journey a little bit, now a few years. In the early days of CRISPR, you were, you were one of the first researchers to really focus on this kind of at the time, new areas right and in particular one of the things that we can point to is you're on the team that was one of the first groups that started incorporating modified bases into guide rnas for crispr can you tell us a little bit about that like how you arrived at that those projects like what kind of things were you considering like what did and didn't work that led you to making those discoveries
2: sure maybe before i'm going to tell exactly about the first project that they did in the in the crispr field it's interesting for me to tell how I choose to come into the CRISPR field. So during my PhD at the Weizmann Institute, which was in the field of, of DNA repair, I had to engineer the cells in order to induce specific mutations that would enable me to study the, some specific questions in, in my PhD. However, it was very difficult to engineer the genome of, of human cells. And not only that, I Spent some time reading the history of modern biology, and I realized that during the 70s, the scientists, mainly from the West Coast, came from with the technology of recombinant DNA, which enabled us to actually cut and paste DNA in tube, and then enabled us also to produce drugs like insulin and others. But it was very difficult to engineer DNA inside human cells, so. Once I finished my PhD, I decided that the next big things after a DNA in the field of genetic engineering is going to be actually genome editing. And at that time, there were, I believe, something like five to 10 labs around the world doing what we call today genome editing. And one of these labs was the lab of Matt Porteus at Stanford. And I actually decided to join him as a postdoc and, and to work with him. Uh, in this field of genome editing.
0: Yeah, it's, in, it's interesting. Like, your background was, it turns out perfect to get into the genome engineering space because, you know, as, as we know, it's not the CRISPR that edits the genome, it's the DNA repair process. So, having a solid background there, like, probably gave you an advantage. You were able to look at things differently, and you already kind of knew that whole process and how the editing actually occurred after the, the breaks were incorporated in, in, into the genome.
2: Exactly. And when I just joined the lab, my project was to work with uh, and to improve the zinc finger nucleus technology. And believe me, it was very difficult <laughs> to work with this technology. I spent the first year of my postdoc struggling with this technology. The project moved very slowly. Actually, after one year, the, the talents came to some degree, enhanced the speed of, of the project, but still it was quite slow compared to what we can do these days with the CRISPR technology.
1: What year was that? Like how far was CRISPR on the horizon?
2: So when I just started the postdoc, it wasn't at the horizon at all. And I still remember this day in the end of 2012, where some of my friends at Stanford, his name is Adi Barzel, is now also a researcher here in Israel. He was a postdoc in the lab of Mark Kay, sending me the paper of uh, Jennifer Dadne and Emmanuel Charpentier, telling me that, hey, pay attention to this CRISPR paper, it's going to be huge. And to be honest with you, I didn't recognize this at that time. I still waited a few more months until the paper that came from the lab of Feng Zhang appeared where his group was able to demonstrate that the CRISPR is working inside human cells. So this was the very beginning of 2013, and immediately I sent an email to Israeli postdoc at the lab of Feng Zhang. Her name is Nomi Chav- Chav- Chaviv. She is also right now a principal investigator here in Israel, and she sent me the plasmids just because the plasmid still didn't send to Agin. So by the very beginning of 2013, I started to work with the CRISPR technology with all the knowledge in the field of genome editing, but now working with a technology that can help me speeding my, my project. That must have been like an amazing time.
0: Like you and your colleagues saw this development happening. At first, you weren't sure what it was going to be, and then you saw how important it was going to be, and you reached out and got involved and, and became yourself one, one of the first, right? Going back to what the previous question about like you know guide format etc. So you started out with using plasmids in in those days. A lot of people used plasmids to express their guides. In vitro transcribed RNAs was also one of the, the ways. Without base modifications at first. So maybe walk us through how those early experiments worked and why you thought a change was necessary. Why it needed efficiency and you know editing needed to be improved.
2: Yeah. So this is also a great question. So. One of my first projects while I was a postdoc at Stanford was to come with a way to quantify to just quantify genome editing outcomes. And in this first work that eventually was published in Cell Reports, we actually decided to use long read sequencing technology from PacBio to quantify genome editing outcomes. And we used all three platforms in in this paper there Zinc finger nucleus, the talents, and the CRISPR. And we delivered the nucleases as, as a plasmid system into the human cells. These were obviously cell lines. And all the platforms were able to generate genome editing results, genome editing outcomes. We were able to quantify by the long reads both NAHEJ disruption of genes and homologous combination because we had the long reads in hand and it was a beautiful paper but then i remember myself sitting in in the group meetings and seeing the results genome editing from primary cells and the lab was working with hematopoietic stem cells and the editing levels were extremely low so while we could get very nice and high levels of genome editing also by homologous recombination in the cell lines We couldn't see any editing events in the the primary cells. So I knew that this is something important that we need to to solve. And again, interestingly, I was in a meeting organized at Stanford at that time. This meeting was organized by NIST, by the NIST organization. And one of the people over there in in this uh, meeting demonstrated that there is a possibility to chemically synthesize the guide RNA of the CRISPR system and we thought okay it's it's maybe this is the way to rescue the CRISPR activity maybe we can chemically synthesize the guide RNA and introduce chemical modification to actually protect the RNA from exonuclease activity and we decided to to try it was a collaboration between the Portus Lab and Agilent Technologies, and we demonstrated that we can rescue the CRISPR activity by these modifications. And this is exactly how my lab is working also today. Once we want to edit primary cells, whether these are T cells, primary T cell, hematopoietic stem cells, we are using the synthetically modified guide RNAs. Yeah, so that's That's... pretty
0: impressive. Like you did this work, made this discovery, like roughly seven or eight years ago. And since then, you've basically been following that same method even until now today, more or less, with maybe some improvements along the way. But that's pretty amazing.
2: Yeah, one of the things that make you proud is once I saw the first paper demonstrate the usage of CRISPR in clinical trial, this was a trial for HAV uh, disrupting the CCR5 gene, immediately I went to see what kind of guide RNA they used in their material and methods and I saw that they used the the modified guide RNA, the same formulation that we published in 2015 and I believe that also these days most of the companies that are using the CRISPR system in their clinical trials in ex vivo studies they are using the same formulation so this is very nice to see something that you developed actually being used right now by the scientific community and by the industry.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I remember seeing that paper. It was probably one of the, as I was writing about CRISPR, you know, one of the first few papers that I had looked at, like Doudna's paper from John's paper, and then this one just to kind of get familiar with how the field has progressed. And I mean, even since in the past few years, we've definitely come a long way. So It's been very impactful and a lot of people obviously now use synthetic sgRNAs and that's, you know, the field is kind of moving forward with that. So, yeah, I can totally imagine how how you must feel with such impactful work in your postdoc. So speaking of your current work, you mentioned you still use sgRNA in your current work. You work with SCID being one of your projects. Could you kind of talk more about what that is and how your lab works on this project?
2: So, my lab is working on continuing to work on developing genome editing strategies for disorders of the blood and the immune system. And one of these disorders or family of disorders is the severe combined immune deficiency, the skin disease, where the poor babies are being born without a functional immune system, whether it's uh, the lack of T cell or combination of T cell B or NK cells, and while the current therapy for this devastating disease is bone marrow transplant, allogenic bone marrow transplant, there are still limitations for this technology, especially in these cases where we cannot find a match donor, and in these cases where we cannot find a match donor, there could be devastating immunological complications. So, actually, by developing a genome editing for severe combined immune deficiency. Every patient can be his own donor by actually harvesting his own hematopoietic stem cells, correcting the broken gene, and then infusing back the corrected cells back to the patient. Now, there are more than 20 different genes that lead to severe combined immune deficiency. And we are working on a number of genes where the regulation of the gene is very important. Specifically, I'm speaking about the RAG1 and RAG2 genes. These two genes are important for a process called VDG recombination. This is a process that generates the wide repertoire of T-cell receptor and B-cell receptor and antibodies. Actually, very interestingly, the RAG1 and RAG2 are working as a complex and introduce double-strand break in the process of generating the wide repertoire. And for this reason, if we want to correct skid, which is associated with these genes, we must restore the activity of the gene and maintain the endogenous regulation. Otherwise, these genes are going to work not properly and can introduce undesired breaks in the genome. So this is one major focus of my lab these days, working on SCID, which is associated with RAG1, RAG2 genes.
1: I see. It's interesting because like a lot of the treatments, or especially gene editing treatments that are currently in trials or even the ones that you would naturally think of are more for monogenic diseases, right? like one gene associated with one disease like sickle cell. So in this case, now that there are so many genes which kind of result in this disease, I mean, sure, there are those added complications where now you have to edit all of these genes. Could you talk a little bit more about, I mean, you kind of mentioned a little bit already, but just the challenges of if this goes into therapy, right? Like you have to edit multiple genes and make sure there are no off targets. And are there any additional challenges as well that, you know, would kind of be need to take taken care of before this goes into
2: therapy? So just to be clear, SCID is still a monogenic disease. There are- more than 20 genes that are associated with the disease, but uh, each of these genes can cause the disease when it's mutated. So it's still a monogenic disease and we need to collect only one copy of the gene, it's a recessive disease, to cure the disease. I must say that working on monogenic disorders is extremely important, even though that these are rare disorders, There are two main reasons for that, at least for me. The first reason is despite the fact that many of these diseases are uh, rare, rare diseases, if you combine all the patients around the world, you end up with a number around 300 to 350 million patients around the world that are suffering from monogenic disorders. But the other reason is In these cases of monogenic diseases, we know exactly what is the broken gene that leads to the disease. Therefore, we can just focus on the genome editing barriers. We know exactly what we need to fix, and once we fix it in a way that is going to be efficient and accurate, we are going to cure the disease. So we really need these what I call flagship stories to demonstrate that we can take this technology to cure disorders. If in in the other cases that we need to correct multiple genes, there are going to be multiple barriers to cure disease and that's going to be much more complex. And for this reason, I believe that focusing in the early days, like now, of therapeutic genome editing in the monogenic disorder is so important, even though that there are rare diseases.
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree. And thank you for clarifying that. So this is still a monogenic disease and it's one-to-one gene association. I think a couple of years back or so, there was in St. Jude's, they had done some sort of gene therapy, which, which seemed really promising for SCIDs also called bubble boy disease, right? Because kids had to be kept in this bubble because they could not interact with the environment. So they don't get any infections basically and just having read that it was so inspiring and just knowing that now with CRISPR it's going to get like even more there are going to be more possibilities for such cures is is really a great positive outcome in this uh, field so thanks for working on this this is really uh, something one of the many diseases that people are looking out for for treatments and and as you said about rare diseases I mean they're rare just because they are Percentage-wise, they may not that one particular disease may not affect a lot of people, but if you look at them combined, it's it's still a huge proportion. So it's definitely one big step in personalized medicine.
2: That's right. Yeah.
0: For skid, you mentioned historically it was treated with like maybe a bone marrow transplant if you can find a donor that matches. And that's not available to everybody. You just can't always find that that match is not as common as we would hope. So genome engineering is like kind of a new hope for these patients. Can you tell us a little bit more about the progress you've made in this area? What's the kind of the current state? Like what experiments are you doing? Have you moved into animal models? If you could speculate how long until this might be in the clinic where these patients might be in trials to cure skid with CRISPR?
2: So the strategy that my lab and also other labs are trying to take right now to cure disease is genome editing by homologous recombination. So we're actually using the CRISPR system to initiate the genome editing process. The CRISPR is working like a, a knife that's introducing the break, but then we also introduce a donor DNA that serves as a template with a corrective transgene to correct the broken gene. This is the strategy that we are taking. And there are still some challenges over there to really find the right formulation, and the right structure of the donor DNA that would enable the correction of the broken genes by genome editing, by homologous recombination. Currently, uh, we demonstrated in vitro that we can correct the mutation which is associated with RAG2. So luckily, we were able to get umbilical cord blood unit from a Skid patient that had successful uh, bone marrow transplant and donated his cells for research to our lab. And we were able to demonstrate that we can engineer the cells, correct the mutation, and now take the corrected hematopoietic stem cells and differentiate them into a functional T cells. And we are working on writing the, the paper these days. So we have a very nice system where we can take the hematopoietic stem cells and in an ex vivo experiments in the dish, differentiate them into T-cells. And then we can examine that they express T-cell markers and they can undergo VDJ recombination. So we were able to demonstrate that we can get it after the correction. Now, the next set of experiments that we are running these days is engineering these cells and transplant them into a mouse model to demonstrate that they can still keep their stem cell potential and differentiate into the different lineages of the blood and the immune system.
0: Wow, well, that's that must be really exciting. It's quite huge technical hurdles like you mentioned that you've overcome and that's amazing work. Thank you for sharing um and we're looking forward to seeing those results as, as they come out. That's great work. So next I think we want to kind of move on to discussing the current state of CRISPR technology. What new developments are you most excited by? But prior to getting there, I kind of want to get your perspective on how far we've come. You're in a unique position where you were among the first to use CRISPR to really pioneer the technology and that it could be used in primary cells. How would you describe where the field is now compared to where it's been? It's been relatively short amount of time since the discovery in 2012 like you said till now it's only 10 years later but it feels like a lifetime of progress almost in only those 10 years and you've been through all of it so how does the CRISPR landscape feel today to you being in there in the early days how is it different how is it the same if you can share your your thoughts and perspectives
2: yeah actually still remember the day that I came to Stanford he took a walk with uh, Matt Porteus it was actually during my interview, 2010, a year before I actually started my postdoc. And I asked him, when do you think genome editing is going to arrive to the clinic? And, you know, we discussed it and we had some thoughts that maybe it's going to take five, maybe 10 years, maybe more. It was very hard to say. Again, remember these days people walk with zinc-finger nuclease. And it's actually pretty amazing that these days CRISPR is actually in clinical trials, in disorders like sickle cell disease, HIV, AIDS, even diabetes type one. It is definitely, absolutely amazing. I, I can't believe that in less than 10 years, this amazing progress was made. Nevertheless, there are still some challenges that we we need to, to solve. There are still some challenges that are related to the safety of the technology. There are two different aspects of safety. Uh, My lab is working a lot around safety issues of the CRISPR technology. One of them is actually measuring the genome editing outcomes, what we call the off-target effects. And there are many types of off-targets. There could be short insertion deletions at the on-target, at off-target sites. But these are only some of the Outcomes. Other outcomes could be structural variations, translocations. And for this, we need to develop new technologies that are based on long read sequencing. So we are also working in this space. And also for each of these types of variants, undesired variants, we need to develop different molecular biology assays because there isn't any one assay that can pick all of these. So this is one challenge in, in the field, specificity, safety, and accuracy. Another interesting aspect which is related to safety is once we work with genome editing homologous combination, we need to introduce the donor DNA into the cell. We do it by actually viruses. We use the AAV to deliver the donor DNA. Our lab and others noticed that this foreign DNA being introduced by viruses is activating quite strong DNA damage response. And this DNA damage response induces cell cycle arrest and apoptosis. So in some of the cases, you can end up getting very nice editing, but some of the cells die from apoptosis and you don't have enough cells for the transplant. So this is another aspect that is very important and my lab is working on that. And the last aspect is, again, once you speak about genome editing to correct broken genes, genome editing a molecular combination, it is very important to design the right donor DNA structures to actually achieve the right regulation of the transgenes. And this is another aspect that my lab is working on, on it right now, these days.
1: Yeah, I can see like all these challenges are are very real. We are in a unique position right now because we've come a long way with CRISPR but then we also recognize these remaining hurdles that would just take it to its full potential. So if you were to have that similar conversation that you had with four years, a few years back now with, with us, if you were looking five years into the future, you know, where do you see CRISPR's applications and, and where would we be say five years from now, since all these things are kind of being worked on right now?
2: Yes. Yeah, so my hope that in the next year or two, we are going to see the first successful CRISPR trials approved and actually having patients that can get this as a treatment, not in a clinical trial. The places that we are going to see it are going to be mainly in these places where you can do ex vivo editing, like with disorders, as sickle cell disease and severe combined immunodeficiency. deficiency. But also, of course, cancer, because in cancer, we can edit ex vivo, the T cells and NK cells. So these are going to be the first places where I I think we are going to be successful trials. And then after that, it's going to be also in vivo editing in places like liver disorders, eye disorders, but also in places as i mentioned like diabetes where we can edit the ips cells outside the body differentiate them into beta cells and also engineer them that they're not going to be rejected and then maybe put them in capsula and transplanted them into the patient so i think that's going to be also an important uh, place where we can see the crispr but not only In medicine, I really believe, even though that this is not my field, that in diagnostics and ag bio, we are going to see amazing breakthroughs. Here in Israel, we have a very nice consortium called crispr where in this consortium, we have groups both from the pharma, academia, working around the human disorders, but also coming from AgBio and Aquabio, because after all, the DNA is quite the same, whether it's a human cell, plant, or a fish that we need to edit. So, yeah, I believe that it's not going to be only in medicine, also in diagnostics and AgBio, we are going to see amazing things going to happen in the next two to five years.
1: Yeah, we've had a few guests previously and covering the spectrum and yeah, ag bio, you know, aquabio, all of these definitely are very interesting fields and, and the work going there is also not to be underestimated, even though like, the focus remains on medicine, all of these fields are quietly progressing and also making a big impact, obviously. So, yeah, thanks for speculating or playing with us in, in that to think through what where we would be next. We generally uh, ask people about, you know, as just as a fun question about like what their alternative career would be if they were not a scientist. You kind of mentioned it at the beginning, so I'm curious to know are you still fencing? How's that going?
2: Yeah, so as a scientist right now, I'm 100% invested in, in science. Still have some time to do some jogging and, and running and but i'm not uh, fencing anymore but maybe to answer your question i believe that uh, a nice alternative career would be to become a traveler because you know as a scientist that one of the amazing things that we are doing are discoveries and exploring uh, new horizons. So, yeah, I think that the alternative career could be a traveler to explore new places in the world. And I still at some point, um, I hope to do that.
1: Yeah, that sounds great. That's my alternative career as well. (laughs) We are trying to take the podcast international and go and interview people in different places. So that might combine our current careers with traveling.
2: Nice. You're right. Mm
1: Yeah, so I think this has been really informative. Thanks for joining us today, Ayal, and talking about all your work. It's so inspiring to know all the great projects you're working on and you know, the progress you and your lab members have made from the past many years. So it's definitely work like this that keeps us going, uh, being in the CRISPR field, knowing what the applications are and, and how impactful eventually our work would be. So thanks for sharing your story with us.
2: Yeah, thank you very much. Maybe before I end, I must say one more thing. So as you probably know and the audience know, one of the most important parts that are related to the CRISPR is that it really democratized the genome editing field. And now there are so many labs around the world that can work with the technology and push the boundaries. And by doing that, we can make new discoveries in basic research in, and also in applied research and in, in medicine and ag bio. I must say that by being able to work with robust reagents, synthetic guide RNAs, the Cas9 proteins, this is also very important to to accelerate my and, and our science. So the reagents that uh, Syntego and other companies are offering these days are really important in in advancing the genome editing field and science so just wanted to end with that and again thank you very much for uh, having me today.
0: Yeah we absolutely share that vision the crispr technology has such immense potential it's already making real impact but it's extremely important that it continues to be accessible to everyone both the researchers developing it as well as the patients that that need it so we completely agree it needs for us to really realize the benefits, it, it needs to be accessible. But yeah, thank you for your time. It was so great to hear your perspectives. Someone who was a pioneer and remains a pioneer, the stories you have to tell are, are fascinating. So keep up the great work, and we look forward to having another conversation with you in the future.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening to CRISPR Cuts. I invite you to check out the Syntheco blog, The Bench, for more great CRISPR content. Please send us any feedback you have by contacting us on Twitter. And if you want to join in as a guest on our podcast, email us at crisprcuts at CRISPR cuts is a scientific podcast by synthigo produced by Kevin, Minu, and me Bobby additional production by resonate recordings. Our cover art is by Jeff Merrick. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you soon.